Welcome to Women in Venture Capital, a podcast by students for students. I'm Roshvina. And I'm Anvita. And we are from the Harvard Business School. Our guest today is Tess Manning. Tess is a principal at GSB Ventures, an early stage venture fund that partners with entrepreneurs in the two trillion global learning and talent technology sector. She's heavily involved with the annual ASU and GSB Summit that connects leaders focused on transforming society and business around learning and work. Tess joined GSB after graduating from the Stanford Graduate School of Business in 2019. Prior to GSB, Tess worked at Pluralsight, a technology skills platform, and Andela, a New York-based business solving the technical talent shortage by building distributed engineering teams in Africa. Thank you for being with us today, Tess. Thanks for having me. So fun to be here. All right. So um, jumping right into it, um, can you tell us a little bit about how you developed an interest in ed tech and your experience working in operations at Andela and Pluralsight? Sure. I'll, I'll try to keep it short, not the, the memoir version. <laughs> uh, I, I am from Texas, but went to NYU for undergrad and studied international relations there and always thought I wanted to work in international economic development. But after a pretty intense immersive study abroad in the South Balkans, actually in 2009, realized I was a little bit jaded by the traditional, you know, international institutions, bureaucracy, speed to impact. And so started thinking about a new way I could um, potentially pursue a career in, in economic development and impact um, globally. And so through a, a kind of serendipitous um, event, someone I volunteered with in New York um, who, you know, we taught kids and homeless shelters dance together through an organization that's really near and dear to me in New York that I was a part of for eight years. Um, when I was in college, this friend of mine, he said, hey, have you ever thought about working at a tech startup? And this was in 2011. I had probably just gotten a Gmail account, didn't know anything about venture or startups, um, but said, sure, you know, I'll come along with you to this event. And it turns out it was the very first demo day of the very first Techstars New York cohort. And I met a team there that was working on an ed tech startup called Very at the time, fell in love with the team and their passion for the mission and realized that their, their mission was actually to democratize access to education um, by you know, providing access to different learning content um, internationally through, you know, through their site that they were creating. Um, so this was really eye-opening to me and I realized the impact that tech could have and in particular in, in the education sector and in the, the skills building um, space. So ended up working with that startup all through my senior year at NYU, really fell in love with working both at an early stage company and then in this sector as well. Um, but, you know, due to the, the life cycle of startups, uh, I ended up joining another early stage startup that was on the complete opposite of end of the spectrum after graduation. It was a marketing software startup called Sailthrough. Um, while I was at Sailthrough, you know, learned the ins and outs of API, sales, customer success products, um, all, you know, kind of everything that you need to, to jump in on hands-on when you're at a startup um, and, and really enjoyed growing that company over three years. Um, I went back to another early stage company called Timehop shortly, you know, shortly thereafter, and was a bit of a generalist there. But one 
problem that I was really focused on was helping our CTO build out um, our engineering team. And this was in 2014. And it was really the beginning of talent wars between San Francisco and New York, and everyone's fighting over the same Google engineers. And we ended up having to get kind of creative with where we found talent. And so we hired our, you know, our lead Android engineer, for instance, in Wisconsin, and our iOS developer in Virginia. And I was really, I really became curious about this idea that, you know, the, the saying now that's pretty popular that um, talent is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. And we were feeling that firsthand. Um, and so we kind of made a leap and started building out a distributed team, which was, you know, around back then, but more so on the traditional, like outsourcing your tech team um, to another country, for instance, versus thinking about truly building, you know, a, a really integrated distributed team and finding talent all over the world. Um, and so I was really excited by that idea, but it was just the early inklings um, at that time. So when I met the founders of Andela, and in particular, Christina, Sass, um, who's now a, a dear friend and mentor of mine, um, I was really fired up by Andela's business model because they were both solving a really intense business challenge that most growing technology companies face and finding top tier talent. Um, and, you know, and, and the engineers just happened to be in Nigeria at the time and then later grew to many other countries um, across the continent. And I was thinking, you know, we, we hired engineers from boot camps in New York. We hired distributed engineers. And Della was providing six months of full stack training to high potential young people across the continent and then placing them as full time remote employees. And uh, it just made a ton of sense. And I was thinking, what is the difference, right, between hiring someone remotely in the U.S. versus uh, another country? So really, really um passionate about the mission and, and also just the, the business model that Indela had developed. And so when Indela raised their their first major round, uh, you know, I went to Christina, I said, I, whatever you need, like, I want to join the team, I want to be a part of this. And so I ended up kind of squeezing my way into um, the second sales position there at Indela. And um, a lot of similarities with with work I'd done in the past, my full time, full first time working in like a full closing role, you know, in sales. Um, and this turned out to be, you know, the best start of experience um, of my life to date and really changed my career trajectory. So, you know, thinking about what we were doing. So we were out there talking to CTOs, talking to heads of talent, trying to convince them to flip their ideas around hiring practices and preconceived notions about what talent looks like and signals of traditional education and training and thinking about like how and where you can build teams. Um, and it was really hard work. You know, people thought we were crazy, right? They're like, why would I hire an engineer in Nigeria? You know, you hear the usual stereotypical stories about scammers and so forth. And it was, so it was really, really challenging. And I think people always forget that when you work on a startup. Um, but I, I was convinced and I was, was uh, you know, adamant about really pushing this model out into the world. And, um, and you know, long story short, the company is, is really successful today and um, has had, you know, Know, over the hundred million dollars in their last funding round, and um, and so a lot of a lot of great impact has happened. But you know, for two years, is out there convincing companies, um, you know, to hire a young woman named Blessing to lead their front end team, who's in Lagos, or a young you know optimistic man named Stanley to be their data scientist in Nairobi, and um, but it was a ton of fun along the way, and um, and really really impactful. So um, you know that a lot of lessons came from working at Intel. One, I realized I loved working in go to market and sales roles and teams. You know, it's a competitive environment. Personally, as a team, you're actually seeing the impact of the work you do um, and growing the company. And I think 
the most proud moments I had was right before I left in Bella to go to business school. Um, we we hosted an event in Texas, which is my home state. And one of my missions while I was in Bella was to to grow Texas as a, a market for us. And we grew from zero clients there to six by the time I left. And these companies were, you know, they had hired over 30 in Bella engineers. We flew them all into town to have a big event and invited every startup in Austin. Um, and you could see like the potential CTOs or meeting the engineers. They were so impressed with their caliber. Um, and it, it was just, it was one of those like, you know, culminating moments where I realized um, the impact that you can really have and taking an idea, you know, zero to a hundred. And so um, loved that and knew, you know, I, I had always, I wanted to go to business school. Um, a lot of my mentors at all these startups were, had their MBAs and, and were extremely well-rounded as, as leaders and thinking holistically about working cross team and, um, and helping grow a, a company in, in a really unique way as a leader. So I knew I wanted to go to business school, um, but I also knew after Indela that I wanted to stay in tech. Um, and so during my time at Stanford, um, decided, as you mentioned, to go spend my summer at Pluralsight. Mm-hmm. And I was very familiar with Pluralsight because we had given all of our engineers um, subscriptions to Pluralsight at Indela. And I knew that they loved the product. So we were essentially, you know, putting the power in their hands to go learn on their own when they needed to learn a new data science or database or certain skill set, a new framework for their clients or just for themselves if they wanted to learn something, um, which is something I very much believe in. And something I very much believe in is having the employer, you know, pay for your ongoing education. Um, and so when I joined Pluralsight, I was excited about both the product, but also the stages company. So Pluralsight had just gone public. Uh, when I joined. And so I joined um, a month later on the strategy team, which is essentially a bunch of really talented ex-Bainies and, and McKinsey folks, um, which was a new experience for me, and and worked those supporting our sales work. So went from working at you know a Series B sales team to a public company as a sales force of around 300 and, um, and learned kind of the differences in strategies that you need to take when you're thinking about hitting quarterly revenue targets for a public company and, and, you know, how you need to think about sophisticating your sales team to have hunters and farmers and different customer segmentation. So really a lot of um, incredible experience and insights that, you know, I've been able to take with me now into, um, into venture as well. So um, kind of a long story there, but, you know, through all that work knew that it's just every experience I had, I wanted to double down on, on working within this sector. This is definitely very interesting, Tess, and you've had a series of very high impact, high growth uh, opportunities that you've been working on. Um, So a natural question there, Tess, for you is that why the transition to investing then? um, And how was the recruiting process for you while you decided you wanted to venture into VCs? Um, Would you say that working at GSV's portfolio companies helped you in the transition? Yes, absolutely. Did to that last question. <laughs> so yes, it's a great question. And people always ask me this, right? Like, if you love working at early stage companies so much, you know, why venture? And and Rashmina and I have spoken about this a bit before as well. So, you know, during you know, during my time at Plural I, I loved working there, but I also realized that at this stage in my career, I do want to stay working with early stage companies. Um, but at this point, you know, I worked with Barry, Sail Through, Time Hop, and Della. I worked at another startup in Nairobi during business school called Lori Systems. And these are all um, seed or A companies. And, uh, you know, and I love that the problem solving, the team building, the vision setting, you know, the constant required process change that you, you need that comes at this stage. 
Um, but I started thinking about it. Well, you know, can I contribute to a company's journey um, during this stage, but maybe from a different perspective? <laughs> and so when I found out um, that GSV was raising their second fund and, and also hiring for the team, um, I reached out. And, uh, and, you know, as you mentioned, a key piece of the story is that um, I had worked at Intel and Pluralsight, which are both you know, coincidentally, or maybe not so much, <laughs> GSV portfolio companies. Um, because GSV is a sector-focused fund and is, is focused on on learning tech. Um, and I met our, our founder and managing partner, Deborah Quazzo. And she is just an incredible, you know, prolific, passionate, impactful, and force of nature within the ed tech industry. And, and I really hit it off with her um, and saw the incredible, you know, reach she's had and, and helping support companies across this whole sector for really like 20 years at this point. Um, I loved our other partners, Julian Michael, and I could just tell how passionate they all were about building both a, a top performing fund, but also supporting this whole ed tech ecosystem. So I thought, you know, this is this is a really unique um, way to work with a ton of different early stage companies versus just digging deep into one, which I had previously done. So, so there's a lot of similarities with the role with things I've done before, you know, a lot of sales and, and go to market experience that you pull in um, and just generalist experience and, and operations. Um, but but it's interesting, like I, I think the in addition to sourcing and and de- diligence analysis, which is endless and, and but really incredible, it's, you know, it's constant learning, you know, venture is a service job. And really, like, it's not about it's not about the team. It's not about like our like bragging rights about you know, which of course, hopefully, we get over time. But it's 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 about supporting the founders and thinking about creative ideas for them, connections, um, creating accountability, um, recruiting for them, coaching, and sometimes just like cheerleading, honestly. Uh, and these are all things that that I love to do and, and have done in the past at all of these different early stage companies that I've been really enamored by and just wanted to be a part of their mission. Right. And I also think um, your journey into VC is very typical of the whole networking part that we talk about. Um, you start working for a company that needed a distributed team of engineers, then ended up kind of selling and growing that concept um, in the States and Africa and and really giving it momentum moving to VC. So um, that's, I think that's a great journey, honestly. How is it being a woman at the decision table? Diving right into the diversity question here. Are there any gender specific challenges that you've come across in the industry? And do you see efforts to address the lack of investment in female or even mixed gender founder teams? Yeah, great. I mean, great, important question and why I'm so excited about this podcast that you're doing to, to highlight a lot of these stories here. Um, so I am very lucky uh, in the sense that GSV was founded, as I mentioned, by a woman, Deborah Quasso. And out of our three partners, two are women. So our other partner, Julia Stiglitz. And then we have another very values aligned and, and awesome partner, Michael Cohn. Um, who's worked with Deborah for 10 plus years. So, and then you take a step, you know, further, two of our, of our four associates are women. I'm a woman as a principal, our head of talent's a woman, our VP of marketing, <laughs> our whole summit team is majority women. So like, you get the idea. Um, this is all very intentional, uh, you know, on, on the team's part and thinking about 
um, about how they're going to build a high-performing team. And and I so I feel incredibly lucky to be a part of this this whole powerhouse group. Um, but also, like, give myself a little bit of credit because I self-selected into it, of course, with reason. Um, and you know, like I, I, but I realize that this is not the case everywhere, right? And um, and so at our at our fund at GSV, like we both internally, but then also in looking at the companies we invest in and then help and how we help them build out their own teams. And we care a ton about diversity. And um, within our fund two portfolio, you know, over half of our companies have women and or uh, person of color founded teams. Um, this is not enough, like by any means, but it's it's definitely we're working toward it. But it's something we, you know, we definitely we, comes into our decision making, you know, and who we invest in. And so the, the other thing that's really interesting, so, you know, I was thinking about this and there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of challenges <laughs> with gender. I mean, thankfully, like we have an inclusive culture that's set really like from the partners and everyone has a voice at the table. There's ownership of our work, like we're collaborative, which I greatly appreciate. Um, it's not like that at every fund. And, and I hear this from friends at other funds. But the other thing is, you know, one thing I hear time and time again is that second time founders, you know, and or experienced, you know, quote unquote, experienced founders who maybe were executives at successful tech companies, that they are able to get venture funding, you know, a lot more easily than than other, you know, underrepresented founders groups, which is tough because that's a that's a cycle that doesn't end, you know. And and you think about like in 2019, like less than is like two point two percent of women earned, you know, all of, you know, out of all the venture funding that was distributed, like two point two percent went to women, even less to women of color, like how are you going to re you know, how are you going to invest in a second time founder if they're, you know, you know the opportunity to be a first time founder and it, like, and let alone like be an executive at a tech company. Like, I think it's no secret that that's equally as challenging. Right. And so this is, this is frustrating. <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, one thing though, that gives me hope is, you know, for instance, like we, we did reinvest in a second time founder. So someone from our first fund who's really incredible, entrepreneur and also just human um, who's really dedicated to the ed tech sector. But one thing that he did, I really respect and is a big part of our decision as well to reinvest is he brought on female co-founders for both of the companies that he's working on right now. And he didn't just get back together the old, the old boys club. Right. Um, and so I think that's something that I would love to see both entrepreneurs do more of um, if they do have access to capital. And then also, um, you know, investors too can push on that and say, great, like I will fund you and, you know, and your early team, but like bring, bring on a person of color to your team, bring on a woman to your team. Um, and if we're going to work with you, like then maybe this is a criteria and a standard that we have. So um, I would love to see more of that as well. Yeah. You make an important point as there that it's important to start somewhere because if there is a notion that's prevalent, it will only start a vicious cycle, which needs to be intervened and taken care of. So that makes sense. Uh, switching gears a bit and uh, talking about the edtech space, you mentioned that GSV is uh, specific to sector on edtech and is going to go about it. And this is an interesting time for edtech if you think about it. One of the few sectors that seems to be uh, the, the one that's pandemic resistant in some way. Um, we know that more than 1.5 million students and teachers are moving online now, uh, which makes the sector interesting. Uh, can you talk about the themes that you've seen emerge in this space amid these COVID times on both the business and the funding side? 100%. Um, definitely no secret that this sector is uh, is very active right now. <laughs> um, and with good reason, you know, there's, there's never in history been 
a bigger opportunity for for problem solving and um, for supporting a crisis. Honestly, you know, when you think about healthcare, of course, is like number one right now. But education, every other headline in the mainstream news is about what's happening with distance learning and how the equity, you know, gap the inequity gap is growing with students right now who aren't able to go to school and just long term, long term, long term effects um, on society. And so, um, really, yeah, like you said, really interesting time to be thinking about who to invest in right now. And, you know, in general, like all of the investment themes at GSV and, and for those of us that have, you know, like I mentioned back in 2014 or 2015, it was at Mandela, we're like, yeah, build a tribute team. Like all of these things we people have been thinking about in the sector for a long time and it's been moving, the puck has been moving there, but overnight it's just completely accelerated. So, you know, across like what we call the pre-K through gray learning spectrum. So there's a ton of opportunity. Um, so some of the themes that, that we have always invested in that are seeing a lot of movement right now. Um, so one of them, you know, you can we call it the return on education. And this is a hot topic at the moment. You know, is it worth it to pay, you know, to go into 200K in debt to go to a four-year university, um, especially if one, maybe two years are going to be distance or hybrid. You know, what what are you really getting out of that program? Um, and so this is this is a big, big area right now that people are thinking about. Um, obviously, there's always been, you know, the, the last couple of years have been the, the strong boot camps that have emerged, things like that. But um, there are other unique things going on. Like one of our portfolio companies, um, Outlier, is creating really affordable gen ed courses um, that are masterclass style. So actually founded by one of the masterclass co-founders um, that, that helps students earn credits. And it's just a few hundred dollars, you know, to complete that course. So there's some really cool things happening there. Um, another one that I kind of mentioned this earlier, but right now this is really critical. So, you know, there are 30 million or more people unemployed at the peak of, of this summer. Um, and so it's really up to, and these are individuals that can't afford to go back to school, right? And so it's really up to either the government or employers to take on the, the monetary burden for reskilling and upskilling these individuals. And and this is something I'm, I really strongly believe in. And I think where the, the world is going, you know, with, with the, just the necessity of lifelong learning as technology advances. So um, there are a lot of companies that are both monetarily paying for their employees um, education like Guild, um, LearnN, Degreed, and then also just thinking about you know how do you get people enough time to learn and how do you help them move um, internally into new careers. So that's something that I'm really excited about as well that I think is accelerating. Um, and then a couple of just really quick other ones. Um, so, you know, obviously adult consumer learning is blowing up across Coursera, Skillshare, Duolingo. People are um, trying to, to fill their, their extra time with personal and professional development and you know, there are only so many sourdough loaves that you can bake in a day. Um, so a lot, a lot of accelerants there. Um, and then more on like the K-12 and higher ed space, um, interesting things like um, what we call accelerated learning. So thinking about how AI can advance and help students get quote unquote unstuck from their learning process. You know, like growing up, like we were in calculus and we had a problem set we were stuck on, like you just got it wrong. And then like the odds are you never went back and figured out how to solve that problem. And like, that was it. Um, so now there are all these really incredible tools, um, like a company called PhotoMath that we invested in. That's a leading math solver that will help you learn the problem you're stuck on. They're just taking a photo of it step-by-step, step. you know, we, how do you work through that? Um, so that's, I mean, that's so cool. Like we, you know, like when you think about, um, about the ability to help about someone who might be having a challenging time, a student, um, it's really, really game changing. So a lot of a lot of experiences like that um, to help students out of the classroom because they have less time with teachers this year. They have less time with peers. Um, so how do you think about both that and then other peer-to-peer -peer learning like like course course hero? 
Um, fun fact, Anvita and I actually met on one of the online courses this past summer, uh, and I've taken some other ones. So going back to your point that people are really trying to learn languages, um, trying to take courses and things they've been really always interested in, but didn't really have the time or ability to do it. So I think that's definitely a trend. Um, as someone with an increasing interest in ed tech, I really enjoyed reading about the ASU GSB Summit and watching the past panels and interviews. Can you tell us more about the summit and what are you most excited about for this year's event? The summit is incredible. Uh, it is something I knew about even back when I was working at Andala and, and before really. So uh, GSV, GSV team, i.e. Deborah and Michael back in the day when it was just a small group, they partnered with Arizona State University, which is actually, um, I think, surprising to most people, one of the most innovative universities in the U.S. Um, as of the past decade uh, with the new president at the helm. And so the ASU GSV Summit brings together over you know 5,500 interviews in the learning sector and education sector um, annually. It's typically in San Diego in March, obviously <laughs> couldn't happen. Um, but the exciting news is that this year, it's at the end of September, so the 29th through October 1st, we have opened up the summit to the public. And there will be all kinds of, you know, four days of incredible panels across K-12, higher ed, enterprise learning um, around, you know, what are what are people doing this year, going into the new school year, going into the new, um, you know, fiscal year, like thinking about next year from the workforce side, like how are we solving all these critical challenges right now um, in the U.S. and really internationally? So really excited about that. Um, personally, I mean, a couple of fun keynotes that I'm looking forward to. Um, one of them is Gloria Steinem, who is an iconic activist um, for women in the U.S. And I, you know, in this crazy year right now, like really across the board of the pandemic, the election, everything going on, Black Lives Matter. I, I can't wait to hear from her. Um, and then the other thing I'm really excited about is we have a, an annual seed stage competition and 200 of the world's top early stage um, ed tech companies will pitch uh, to a group of premier investors. And it's just a ton of fun to see um, to see what, what comes out of that as well. So um, everyone should definitely join us. <laughs> but looking forward to it. Awesome. Um, thank you, Tess, for joining us today and giving us all these insights on ed tech and your journey really into the industry from entrepreneur to um, to investor. Um, thank you. Thank you both. It was wonderful to be here and just excited to be a part of this, this growing community that you're building. So important. <music>